You know, we're back in Romans 9 this week. This week. It's our third and final week in Romans chapter 9. We got a week off last week with uh, Phil's great teaching. And uh, uh, because it's such a fiercely debated chapter in the Bible, bringing up a lot of uncomfortable points on God's character for many of us, and because it takes quite a bit of explanation, this week we're going to lay off a uh, review of what the book of Romans as a whole is about. We've done that most weeks. You can listen to past teachings online to get uh, a better idea because I think that's important for us to always remember that this is a letter written to a specific church at a specific time for a specific reason. But for time's sake, I can't get into the context as much as I'd like to. Uh, So let's go ahead tonight and read Romans chapter 9 on our own right now, the whole chapter. So go ahead and grab your Bible or your phone or Google Romans 9, and uh, let's read the whole thing together silently on our own. And as you're reading this, let's be actively praying that as individuals we can understand and apply this chapter And as a body, our brothers and sisters can as well. So let's do that now. Romans chapter 9, the whole chapter, we're going to be reading it on our own. Okay, a few more seconds here. In the Bible, it does exist outside of this building, so you can't come back to it after the service. But you know, Romans 9 has been interpreted for hundreds of years through the lens of two great Christian thinkers who kind of represent two main interpretations of this chapter. Uh, John Calvin and Jacob Arminius of the late 1500s and early 1600s. These two schools of thought are focused on how God chooses ones unto salvation. The word is election. 
and also the nature of God's role in the judgment of those who fail to receive Jesus as Lord. We provided a basic introduction to these two perspectives last week. I want to say that both are considered orthodox and both are welcome here at Awaken, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum. The divide becomes a little bit intense in Romans 9. However, there's much that these two views share in common, and we need to start with that. We've already spoken of it several times, but we need to speak of it again. And that is, Paul says in the first six verses of Romans 9, that he would sacrifice his own salvation. He would be eternally separated from God for the sake of his Jewish brothers and sisters who believe that they can be made right with God simply through their Jewish ethnicity and obedience to the law. It's a works-based salvation, and it says that he has uh, uh, great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his Jewish countrymen. His heart is broken for them. He wants them to see and understand and believe that salvation is through Christ alone, not through works. And that is the same broken heart that God wants us to have for the lost. That is the heart of Romans 9. Even though it's some tough stuff, that's the heart. And both sides would say Paul is making a case as to why God's word has not failed. And that's verse 6. God's word has not failed. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That is, not all who are just simply genetically Jewish have a Jewish heart, have a faith in Christ, looking forward to Christ before he came and looking back towards the finished work of the cross and the resurrection after he came. So he's saying, I know it seems like God's word has failed because the promise was to the Jews. They were God's chosen people, and I know you've received some false teaching that's not in the Bible about how you're made right with God, that is through works and not by grace through faith. You've received some false teaching, so you're thinking God's words failed because very few Jews have put their faith and trust in Jesus. So both sides would agree with that. Simply stated, he starts the argument here in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, as to how someone could be genetically Jewish but not Jewish in faith. Much agreement here. Beyond that, both would affirm that no one comes to the Father, said Jesus, but by me. That there is salvation in no one else. That all roads do not lead to God. There's one road that leads to God, and it's Jesus Christ. That all who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of salvation and the free gift of righteousness will do so through the one man, Jesus Christ. And it is his act of righteousness alone that leads to acquittal and life. That is acquittal from the uh, charge of being a sinner in God's presence. So why broadly both agree that it's through Christ alone, that it's through faith and not by works that we're saved, and more specific to Romans 9, uh, that both would agree, both sides would agree, that the focus is on what does it mean to be in Christ, to have faith, to be truly Jewish, to be truly Israel, that it's more than being genetically Jewish. Both would agree. But in, even in light of these distinction, even in light of this unity, some of you are going to say, Chris, but I know you're about to unpack more of the distinctions between the two. Why should we care? If there's all this unity, why should we care? Well, we can have different, different perspectives in the church and in the larger body of Christ and hold those convictions dearly and passionately and disagree, but still have the unity of Christ, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace within that. 
And the reason why we need to wrestle with this chapter, the reason why I'm not just teaching these first six verses, which many would do and it'd be fine, is because our perspective on this chapter and the doctrines represented here radically affect the way we view God, his role in salvation and judgment, and the role of our will or lack thereof in salvation. It's very important. Our perspective on this passage really paints in many ways the way we view our own personal will and God's election of us unto salvation. So it's important. You know, the, the complete summary of all the differences we covered two weeks ago up until chapter 9, verse 14, uh, the complete summary I don't have time to give tonight. You know, I really, in order for you to understand where we're picking up in verse 14 tonight, it's going to be very hard for you to do that if you didn't listen to the teaching two weeks ago. Uh, and that's okay. I think you'll be able to kind of catch up as we go along. But if you missed it, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that teaching from two weeks ago. Uh, but assuming you have, the very condensed synopsis is that Calvinists interpret God choosing, I, and you read this just a moment ago, Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau as a picture that will continue on through, the Roman, through Romans 9 that God chooses some unto salvation and some unto judgment. That he chooses whomever he will to be saved. Whomever he will. The Arminian perspective says, no, 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 you got it wrong. God chose Isaac over Ishmael and he chose Jacob over Esau because God has the right to choose the method of salvation. He has the method, he has the uh, divine will, the sovereignty to choose however, not whomever, but however one might be saved. And that God has the ability and the sovereignty to choose that salvation does not come through the law and through a Jewish genetic heritage, but it comes through Christ. Do you guys see the distinction there? Do you see that? You got me? Whomever, for the Calvinist, however, for the Arminian. Okay. So in short, the Arminian interpretation of this passage would say that Romans 9 shares that God can save however he chooses. That is through Christ instead of through adherence to the law and Jewish DNA. The Calvinistic perspective is that Romans 9 demonstrates that God can save whomever he wishes. And it has very little to do with our will and our initiation and our decision. Uh, so that's all we have time for review. Uh, we don't have any more time. I spent too much time. We need to jump into our passage for tonight. So Romans 9, verse 14. Let's put on our hard hats, pray for the Spirit to move, and really dig in here and work hard to understand this, okay? Romans 9, 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Because remember... What did Paul just said? He had said, well, God chose Jacob over Esau, even though they had done nothing to deserve that choice, uh, either positively or negatively. So what shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? 
But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul's again using that that style of teaching that we've talked about several times now through the book of Romans. There is an imaginary questioner. And, and, And he's using this form of argument to address the questions he knew were in the minds of his audience. And that is, hey, this seems unfair. That God would choose despite people's works, despite their efforts to try to please God because they thought it was by those efforts that they were saved. Okay? So he continues this familiar argument. So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, knows that his Jewish audience will be thinking, hold on a minute. You're you're saying that God has chosen the line of Christ Abraham's true spiritual descendants through Isaac and not Ishmael, through Jacob and not Esau, and that it's divorced of their efforts, that seems unfair. Again, this is according to the Arminian lens, all right, that this is speaking just of, just simply of the line through which Christ would come, his family tree, that it has nothing to do with election unto salvation. That's the Arminian perspective. Or... Calvin, this would be the question. Hold on a minute, Paul. You're saying that by illustration, God chooses who will be saved through the choosing of Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau and who will be cut off from Christ. Isn't that unfair? The unfair being predestination, and that is God chooses who will be saved before they're even born. And again, Paul, in verse 15, we've said many times through the book of Romans that he will quote the history books of Israel's heritage, the Old Testament, and he'll just share like a brief sentence. And he does that knowing that it's going to jog their memory and they're going to remember a whole story, paragraphs and paragraphs long. Because they basically had been raised on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, understanding the whole history of Israel by memory. They, They understood it all, the whole context. So... Here's his quote in Romans 9, verse 15. He quotes from uh, hundreds of years prior in redemptive history, uh, uh, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt in Exodus 33. He says, for he says to Moses, this is God, for he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And again, he's quoting from Exodus 33, verse 17. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, Paul's Jewish countrymen would have understood the context immediately here. As soon as Paul said, quoted here, God saying to this conversation between God and Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In context here, God has already provided the Ten Commandments. He wrote them for God's people. He, 
uh, miraculously etched them into stone tablets. Okay, this were not, they were not written on post-it notes, but stone tablets by God for the people of God. And literally, while, they were, while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai, the people were down at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf that they were worshiping instead of God. Talk about idolatry. I mean, they're reaching one of the high points in redemptive history where God provides the Ten Commandments and the people are down worshiping an idol. And we do the same thing, right? Lord, I'm never going to commit this sin again. Five seconds later, we do it again. We have, we, you know, we go to church, we're around God's people, we're so encouraged, and then we blow it that same day. Well, no different here. Now, God, in his mercy, uh, provided uh, another copy of the Ten Commandments. He provides another copy. And so, catch me here, to the Arminians, when, they, when Paul quotes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, this is their thinking from the start of the context. Okay, bear with me here. There's gonna come a time. If you don't listen to tonight's message, I just wanna say, here's what's gonna happen. This passage will haunt you. I don't know how many times I've read it and I've thought, man, I mean, you know, he'll, he'll make some to be objects of wrath. What does that mean? It's a very hard passage, and many believers stumble over this, so let's focus in here. So for the Arminians, the perspective is just as God, in his mercy, chose the line of Christ, okay? Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, just purely by grace, even though they didn't deserve it, the line of Christ, the mercy, the the, the the compassion and mercy and undeserved favor of Christ is shown even through the descendants through which Christ came. You have prostitutes and criminals and all the rest. It wasn't those who were the religious elite. So it was by God's mercy. In the same way that God had mercy on these Israelites by providing them a second copy of the Ten Commandments, so he will have mercy on these Jewish people if they turn from their sin and Gentiles alike. Now, the Calvinist perspective is a little bit different. Again, Arminian, God chooses, God chooses however he wishes to bring salvation, and he has chosen to do that through Christ, not the law. The uh, Calvin's perspective is a little bit more rudimentary. It's a little bit more basic, and it's what most of us understand just on a don't turn me down, Kimball, just because you're not a Calvinist. You notice right there at that point, he turned me down. No, I'm just, I'm just giving you a hard time. I couldn't resist it. Uh, but uh, that threw me off. I do not need to be thrown off in a talk like this. Yes, okay. That it just simply means, hey, God chose. The Calvinistic perspective is what you would probably, most of us would probably believe if we just read it one time, divorced of any Old Testament context. And that is... Okay, well, God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. And he chooses who he's going to show mercy and compassion to and who he's going to judge. He chose to have mercy on the Israelites because they were God's chosen people. He chose to have mercy on uh, Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. And he will choose to have mercy on whomever he wishes. So this passage is about election. It's about who's saved and who's cut off from Christ. Does that make sense? Yay or nay? Good. All right. 
There's agreement between the two camps on this verse, Romans 9, 16. It says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Remember, both sides believe it's by mercy. It's by grace, not works. But it's the means of salvation and the impact of our will on salvation that's in question here. So the lens of Calvin answers the question from verse 14, which is the main question here in this section, is God unjust because of his choosing there that we've already gone over? But they use the quote from Exodus 33 in a different way. What we just read in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses asked God, now show me your glory. And God answers Moses in verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. Now, when God says he's gonna proclaim his name, it means way more than when I say, hi, my name's Chris. Or you say, hi, my name's Katie. It means way more than that. When God proclaims his name throughout scripture, he calls himself the great I am. He says, I am, all capital letters. And what that means is he is the creator. He's sovereign. Even with all of our questions and skepticism, he does not need us to believe that he's correct and we're wrong. There is not one ounce of insecurity in him. He holds all eternity in his hands. And he is perfectly secure in the love that he shares with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the great I am. And so as a result, uh, Calvin would say, no, 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 this passage is saying that God has the ability to choose whoever he wishes, and even if we view that as unfair, God is justice. He's justice, and he doesn't need our perspective, our flawed, frail perspective on justice in order for him to support how he, how he saves and who he saves. Okay. So again, for the Arminians, it's about the method of salvation. And for the Calvinists, this passage is about how God chooses individuals to be saved or judged. So then Paul adds to the argument here, and he chooses the arch nemesis, the absolute scumbag of Jewish history that everybody would believe, okay, if anybody's cut off from Christ, it's going to be this guy. And it's Pharaoh in Romans 9, verse 17. Would you guys think it was weird if I started wearing a camelback on stage so I didn't have to go back and get a water? I could just be like, I saw this dude on the way to baseball yesterday, fall ball, coaching fall ball. Of course, I'm always coaching something. And he was walking very slowly, but had a camelback on. So me and Josiah made fun of him for about five minutes. I probably shouldn't do that, should I? That's probably, I repent of that. I mean, it doesn't seem like a big deal because I don't know him. But it is a weird thing to do. I mean, if you're running, it's okay. But if you're walking, is it weird? Raise your hand if you think that's kind of weird. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, so then Paul adds to his argument using Pharaoh. Oh, there's a delayed response there. Okay. Uh, Romans 9, verse 17, it says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, so that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, the Calvinist perspective would say, hey, this is very clear. God chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. He chose who he's going to show mercy to and who he's going to harden, and he raised up Pharaoh to be an object of his wrath. 
to display his glory. Now, he didn't force Pharaoh's will. He didn't somehow take Pharaoh, who wanted to choose God, and flip his will around and make him choose sin. God, but then on the Arminian side, they would say, no, this is once again, the mercy train continues. Just as God divinely and mercifully brought about the line of Christ through people who didn't deserve it, he also displayed mercy on God's people by providing the Ten Commandments twice because of their sinfulness, and he provided grace to you. Thank you, Josie. That's so sweet. And he provided grace by raising up Pharaoh and then giving him multiple opportunities, actually ten different times. He gave Pharaoh the opportunity to repent and let God's people, the Israelites, go out of Egyptian bondage and slavery. And that was just another uh, stop on the mercy train that God is trying through redemptive history to show us that he's, he, he wants to give a second, third, and a uh, hundred chances, a million chances to receive him, to repent. So that's their perspective on how Pharaoh is raised up here. All right, so again, it's God, according to the Calvinists, God chooses blank he wishes. Fill that in. Whomever. God chooses whomever he wishes. The Arminian perspective, God chooses he wants, however he wants salvation, right? Okay, so we got that locked down. We're good to go, ready to move on. Got it locked down? Good. Uh, Let's move on to Romans 9, 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Again, we've got this imaginary questioner, this form of argument that Paul uses as his teaching method for who's able to resist his will. I mean, the idea, and that's a, a natural question. And isn't it cool that God doesn't shut down our questions? It's like, well, man, if, if, if some are just raised up to be hardened, then we don't really have any, why even bother? Here's Paul's answer to a question he knew his Jewish audience would have. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? This is the toughest section, I believe, in the toughest chapter in the entire Bible. And I, I want to pray just for this piece of the teaching, this piece of God's word. Can we do that? Let's pray with me. Lord, we come together with the mind of Christ now and just pray that you'd bring clarity, Lord, that you'd protect us from the lies of the enemy as we uh, read this, Lord, that you'd protect us from thinking that somehow you are a ruthless dictator. Lord, please protect us from that. Lord, please protect us uh, uh, from wanting to believe that you are wired in a certain way in terms of your character, wanting it so much that we put on interpretive goggles that cloud our perspective on what your word really says. Lord, and help us rest in what we know to be true, even when we're wrestling with what's true here. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay.
So we've reached the climax here. To the Calvinists again, once again, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. Pharaoh was predestined to be judged. And the answer to the question raised here by the imaginary question is this. Well then, God can't hold anyone accountable for being an object of wrath, an object of judgment, can he? And Paul clearly answers this according to the Calvinist, that it's God's choice that once again he's sovereign. And basically the idea is it's not yours to decide. This is too big of a thought for you. You need to trust that God knows what he's doing and that somehow, even, this might, even though this might seem cruel to you, that God is the definition of justice. Okay, so it's a very elementary and in many ways, uh, very sobering understanding of this passage. Uh, the Arminians assume that Paul is using a pottery illustration pointing to uh, repentance that they would have been, the Jews would have been familiar with from the Old Testament, specifically from the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I want to say here, to show my cards a little bit, just for anything else, I hope that we develop through this chapter a humility that we don't go around on, on, on chapters like this that are allowed to have an open-handed interpretation, meaning that there are several perspectives that are orthodox and right and they're okay to have and we can love one another through that even when we disagree. There are other passages that are close-handed. You know, if we're talking about John 3.16, we, we all would agree that, that that's saying that salvation comes through Christ alone. That's a close-handed issue. We all need to agree on that, okay? So hopefully this gives us a humility here. So having said that as a disclaimer, I think the Arminian perspective on this particular section, uh, the pottery illustration, I think that it's a stretch because they're saying that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament where elsewhere through Romans 9, Paul makes it very clear when he's quoting from the Old Testament. Now, maybe he was, you know, he, he was making this vague reference to pottery and it would have jogged the, the Jewish imagination to go back to Jeremiah, maybe. Uh, but I think that's a strong maybe. Anyway, that's me. I got, there are other perspectives, and I'm, I'm trying to practice humility with you tonight and share uh, honestly and passionately on both sides, okay? Uh, and let me go back a little here. If you'll, let me explain specifically what I mean. Elsewhere in Romans 9, like when Paul's talking about Pharaoh, he, it's quoted. It's specific, here, all he says is, he just, he makes a reference to pottery in 19 through 24. So that's what I mean by that. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So anyway, but now I'm going to share the, where the Arminians pull from. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as he seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, 
And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So again, the Arminian perspective would say, God mercifully chose the line of Christ not based on works. He chose uh, Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. He chose to show mercy on whom he'd had mercy, compassion on whom he'd had compassion. And uh, he mercifully gave the Israelites the opportunity to receive the Ten Commandments a second time, just as he mercifully gave Pharaoh the opportunity to repent multiple times. Just as he mercifully is saying to the Israelite people, hey, you are like clay in my hand, and right now you are prepared to be an object of wrath. But if you repent, I can reform you and make you into a new creation, and you can be an object of mercy. So that's, again, what I would view as maybe reading between the lines here. According to the, uh, uh, a more Calvin-leaning perspective here, and again, in all this, guys, there would be shades of each. And some people carry, as I do, I feel like I have perspectives that borrow from both sides here. And we're interpreting based on what, doing our due diligence to study hard, be humble, ask others, and at, and, and at the end of the day, what do we believe to be true uh, after hard study and humbly ask, asking other brothers and sisters. But Calvin would say, no, God divinely chose, again, uh, uh, the, the four brothers, he divinely chose them. He chose to have mercy on the Israelites unto salvation. He uh, judgmentally predestined Pharaoh to be an object of his wrath. And Paul's closing up his argument saying here, God can have compassion on whoever he, whomever he wishes. And he can do whatever he wants with his creation. Okay. But regardless of perspective here, we can all agree that this passage moves us to see some very important things. Number one, God is the one in charge of who gets saved and how they get saved. And it's only through Christ and not by works. Amen to that? And that those who don't receive Jesus as Lord will be eternally separated from him. And that should sober us believers. And it should break our hearts. And until we can start crying for the lost, we should be praying, fasting, begging the Holy Spirit to break our hearts for the lost. And I want to say finally here that an important thing for us to apply from this passage that everybody can agree on is there are people in our lives that we love dearly who are just, they're choosing the wrong way to salvation. They're saying that all roads lead to God. And that's wrong. And I think that's how Paul felt here. Saying, Jewish brothers and sisters, you, you have it wrong. You're looking to the wrong means of salvation. And maybe tonight, you have the wrong means of salvation. You think, well, all roads lead to God. I mean, isn't it all the same? No, it's not all the same. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that all roads could lead to God. He died on the cross because he is the way, the truth, and the life. One plus one is two, not six. Jesus saves and no one else. None of us would ever say, well, if I'm in love with one person, why does it matter if I'm in love with another person? Isn't love love? Can't I just hop from relationship to relationship and marry this person today and that person? No, we wouldn't say that. We have an innate sense that there is truth in our universe and that there is real love. And that love is found 
in Jesus. So as we get frustrated with why others are, are struggling to, 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 to believe that Christ saves through faith alone, by grace and not by works, we're in good company, aren't we? And that should grow our burden for the lost, not frustrate us to separate ourselves from those who don't know Jesus, right? Okay. All right. Uh, Nick, you can go ahead and come on up now and sweat with me. Uh, at this time, we're going to take our offering as well. And this is time for those who are regular with us to give. But don't, uh, don't be afraid to write down those prayer requests. Those are confidential. Write them down. Throw them in the basket. It's been great seeing uh, more and more requests every week for uh, uh, Kimball and I to pray for and others on the prayer team. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, even though there are pieces of your word, like what we read tonight, that are complex, Lord, we thank you that when we see you face to face, really what's going to matter is did our heart break for lost people. And we cry out for that now. Lord, we cry out for patience and compassion as our friends who are far from you struggle with uh, the means of salvation. Lord, that we, like Paul, would, would implore them, would search for words and actions from your spirit that will clearly and effectively communicate the gospel to that person's heart and mind and will. And Lord, we do pray for these gifts now. We pray that it would be a continuation of our worship service, Lord, that we would express our dependence on you by giving to you and your kingdom, please. In Jesus' name, amen.